I'm George Hirsch. And I'm Alex Getzfried. This week on George Hirsch Lifestyle Radio, we're diving into education. We learn throughout our lives, whether it's from formal teaching or by observing our mentors. And today, we want to talk about education at the intersection of food and culture. We're going to meet with the president of one of the world's leading culinary schools, Dr. Tim Ryan of the Culinary Institute of America. We found this great campus, former Jesuit seminary in Hyde Park, New York, and bought it for $1 million, 80 (laughs) acres. And George, you know, that's a great real estate deal. (laughs) Later in the show, we'll be joined by another educator, chef, award-winning author, and native foods historian, Dr. Lois Frank. And then I started working in restaurants and knew I wanted to be a chef, knew that food was going to be my life. It's time to come together on George Hirsch Lifestyle Radio. Two of the most essential mentors in my life were women, my mother and my grandmother. They both instilled in me the need to keep learning and growing personally and professionally to further enrich people by nourishing others. But before I was born, two other women would be a significant catalyst in my career and the career of tens of thousands. They would then go on to be responsible for educating future chefs who would go on to nourish others worldwide. In 1946, two women shared a daring vision to create the culinary center of the nation. A Connecticut-based attorney, Francis Roth, was one of the most influential pioneers in culinary education with support from co-founder Catherine Angel. Today, the Culinary Institute of America celebrates the 75th anniversary with campuses worldwide and online degree programs. The CIA is widely recognized as the world premier culinary college. Its reputation for excellence is evidenced by its president, outstanding faculty, passionate students, and more than 50,000 accomplished alumni. Joining us is one of today's leading culinarians and scholars, Dr. Tim Ryan, president of the Culinary Institute of America. As a master chef, educator, he is recognized as the pioneer in American cuisine movement, named one of the most 50 most powerful people in food. His thought leadership has guided the Culinary Institute of America to a position of prominence on such important matters as health, wellness, world flavors, food ethics, and sustainability. Dr. Ryan's presidency builds on his history of leadership in culinary education and the food service industry. Hi, Tim. It's such a pleasure having you with us today. (laughs) Hi, George. Great to see you. We're proud of you as one of our alumni, too. Well, thanks. I think the last time we were together, we were having lunch at your Napa Valley Grayston campus. And my goodness, you have gone on to just such amazing, amazing things for not just the alumni, but the whole food world. First, first, let's start off. Give us us a a background of the Culinary Institute because it's, it's enormous today. Well, you did a great job talking about our history. Of course, we started uh, humble beginnings, the end of the Second World War, these two dynamic uh, ladies, and uh, the New Haven Restaurant Association. Actually, the idea started with the New Haven Restaurant Association, and they knew that they were, they were too busy and unable to really fulfill the dream, so that's when they brought in Mrs. Roth, who brought in Mrs. Angel. And since that time, of course, we uh, thrived in, uh, on the Yale campus in, in New Haven until the early 70s, and we were busting at the seams. We found this great campus, former Jesuit seminary in Hyde Park, New York, and bought it for $1 million. <laughs> Uh, 80 acres, and George, you know, that, that's a great real estate deal. <laughs> it's 88, was originally 80 acres, now it's 180 acres, 
And this has been uh, the home base for us for many years. And of course, now we have two campuses in California, a campus in San Antonio, Texas, one in Singapore. We have a castle in Italy for our students who are studying Italian food and culture. In Puglia, the heel of the boot, we've got a campus in uh, Barcelona in partnership with the University of Barcelona and probably a couple other things that they haven't, uh, haven't told me about. From the original training program, the CIA, George, as you know, was, was originally intended to train veterans returning from the Second World War. And the early program was really only nine weeks of, of right. training. Yeah. And then it continued to expand from, from there. When we came to New York in the early 70s, we started to offer associate's degree programs. And then uh, starting in the 90s, we offered our first bachelor's program. Now we have multiple bachelor's programs, multiple master's programs, and it's been a fantastic journey. Uh, the CIA's growth and development parallels in some ways uh, the profession and the food industry. Actually, we believe that we helped to lead that development, and that's really been core to our mission over these years. And it's still the idea that moves us forward and drives us. How can we better the profession? How can we better the industry? How can we help America and the world mm -hmm. to really eat, uh, eat better? Now, you, you mentioned about being masters. Well, I, I have to drill back to you now because your background is very unique very unique in culinary education. Foremost, being a master chef and then going on for your doctorate. Walk us through a little bit of that path. Well, George, as, as you know, because you've, you're certified by the American Culinary Federation as I am and have been involved with the ACF for, for a long time. So there's a certification process um, that culminates in the designation of certified master chef. <laughs> to be a certified master chef is quite different from you know people proclaim themselves or mm -hmm. a writer may proclaim somebody a master chef mm -hmm. kind of as a honorific thing or a compliment there's actually a certification process and um, there's a ladder that you uh, work your way up getting uh, educational uh, credentials to become a certified executive chef and once you're at the certified executive chef level you can qualify to take what in my day was a 10-day comprehensive mm -hmm. hands-on examination, 10 days of cooking and, and testing. And if you passed uh, all those things in, in 10 days and the failure rate was about 90%, 95%. It was, it's, a, it's a brutal test. It's like going for a black it's belt. It's a brutal <laughs> test. It's a brutal test. So there's lots of, lots of attrition. And after Geez, I don't, I don't remember now how many years we've been doing it. 30 years, I think 63, mm -hmm. 65 people have, have prevailed and have that uh, certified master chef uh, credential. But once you get it, it's a great, uh, it's a great thing to have. So what, what then led you down the path of, I'm, I'm going to go for my, my doctorate? Yeah, that's a, you know, that's a good question. And uh, I haven't thought about that for, uh, for a while. Well, you know, sometimes life takes you uh, down uh, unanticipated paths. And uh, that's surely the case for me. Uh, I um, had a completely different career path in mind and I started down a, a different path. I didn't intend to become the president of the, of the CIA of my alma mater. I wanted to be Paul Bocuse. Uh, Paul Bocuse is, uh, the, you know, I, I think the most important chef in, in history now. 
He passed away a couple years ago, a French chef located in, in Lyon, France. And he, he for chefs, George, I know you know yes, this, but yes. our, our listeners and viewers might not, um, to chefs particularly of, of my generation, Paul Bocuse was like Elvis Presley was yes. to the early rock stars. Mm-hmm. I mean, he was the man, and that's who everybody aspired to be. So that was my original career path. And I went to France. I worked for Paul. I worked for some of the other uh, great French chefs. Uh, I came back to Pittsburgh. I opened a French restaurant. This is a truncated <laughs> version of my story, of course. Um, you know, I opened a French restaurant, great critical acclaim. Uh, we were very successful. And um, then I met my predecessor here at the CIA, a guy by the name of Ferdinand Metz. And uh, you know Ferdinand. And uh, Ferdinand was uh, in Pittsburgh. That's my hometown. And he was in charge of all research and development at H.J. Hines Corporation. And he had just been named the, the new president of the CIA. And shortly after he, he was named, he called me up and said, I want to start this new American project here. And I'd, I'd, I'd love you to come and be a part of that. And I said, yeah, that's nice, but, you know, I'm, I've got this restaurant. I'm, you know, on this French thing. Nobody knew what, George, you remember, nobody <laughs> was, knew what American cuisine was. It was revolutionary you know? back then. What is this bounty <laughs> thing? <laughs> exactly. Uh, hot dogs, hamburgers, what's American cuisine? And um, so originally I said no, but, you know, we kept in touch and he kept uh, encouraging me. So ultimately I decided to come and do this American project, which culminated in the opening of the American Bounty Restaurant, one of the first American Mm -hmm. restaurants. This was in early uh, 1980s. And I said, well, you know, this guy, Ferdinand, is very interesting. I love my alma mater. I think this will be an interesting Mm -hmm. project for me. I'll do it for two years, and then I'll be back out trying to be Paul Bocuse. You know, I'm going (laughs) to learn a bunch of things. This is is literally the story. But once I got here to the CIA, and George, I know you can relate to to this. There's something magic about the place. Mm -hmm. And though I had experienced that as a student, to come back as a faculty member was a completely different thing. And, um, you know, you could sense and feel every day that you were making a difference in people's lives. Mm -hmm. And as I thought about it more, I said, you know, even if I do become the American Paul Bocuse, which was inconceivable at the time, Michelin didn't write or rank restaurants here. I mean, it's a long time ago. Um, You know, and I I saw wave after wave of graduating class leave the institution. I'm like, wow, you know, you can really make a difference here. I didn't really quite understand it as, as a student. So um, I got turned on by that. This is, a, this is a long answer to your story, but this is how, how it works. And um, uh, I went to Ferdinand and said very naively, I'm like, hey, guess what? Um, I've, I, I decided I'm going to stay here. I'm going to make a career here. And he looked at me like, you've been here for six months. So, <laughs> <you know. laughs> he didn't say that. To the pension's credit, not ready yet. <laughs> no, right, exactly. And, uh, you know, I was in my 20s. And, he's, and I said, and I think that whenever you're done, I'd like to take over after you as president. This was like one of the most naive and, and bold, a lot of chutzpah there um, to say that. But to his credit, he said, that's a great idea. I like that. 
uh, I'm going to be around for a while. Mm -hmm. You know, he was around for another 20 years sure, after that, sure. by the way. He said, but you're going to need to do a lot in order to get ready for that mm -hmm. and to prepare yourself. And there's going to be no guarantees. And I said, okay, I'm ready. What, you know, tell me what I need to do. And so over the next couple of weeks, we developed like a list of, I don't know, probably 20 things to do, including getting a certified master chef. I was already on the culinary Olympic team at that time. Um, he said, you're going to have to be the captain. So you're going to have to do more than when I was on the national team, but you're going to have to be the captain. You're going to have to, I had an associate's degree then. You're going to have to get a bachelor's degree. You're going to have to get an MBA. He said, I have an MBA. Next president will need to have a doctoral degree. Uh, and so I was like, oh man, I, you know, wow, this is going to take forever. He goes, you have time. Right. And you just have to do it one step at a time. And there was a whole other list of things that we kind of developed. And uh, I said, okay, I've got time. <laughs> Let me start to um to to work on this on this list and um so that's what i did well and i think it it's important tim quite you a long time but i, but yeah, I did it but so. you planted the flag and i think yeah. that's a, yeah. a, a great life lesson and it's a great educational thing for even prospective students you need to plant yeah. the flag you need to plant the flag as far as where you're going to go in your in your craft and your career um, right i think that's that's good advice and and looking back that's exactly what i did i committed to that Though at the time, again, it was more out of kind of uh, um, youthful enthusiasm and uh, unrealistic <laughs> expectations, brashness, chutzpah, um, but it worked out because I, I, I worked hard at it. I did follow through, and that's important, as you know. And you also uh, drove the bus to transforming the Culinary Institute, which was magnificent even during that time. But really brought it to like university level where it is today. Just just kind of give us a little bit of a track of, of you know, what, what is taking place, you know, at the CIA worldwide in your different programs? Well, you, you mentioned um, the term thought leadership, which is really important to us. You know, the, the really great institutions um, aren't just teaching uh, things that were developed by others. Mm -hmm but they're writing the books, they're doing the research, they're doing the papers, they're really blazing new paths and, and new trails. Um, many of which in retrospect seem absolutely obvious. That's when you know that you were really successful. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the first path that the CIA really, uh, uh, you know, cut the trail we blazed was professionalizing the industry. And now it seems apparent and chefs are stars and they have TV shows and, and uh, write books and get all these public accolades. But, you know, even back in the 80s and 70s and certainly the 60s and 50s or when the school started, that wasn't true. That's and oftentimes true. the profession was looked down upon. Mm. Uh, the image was often a caricature. Uh, if you, I know, George, I know you remember the old um, cartoon Beetle Bailey. Yeah. Yep. where Cookie was the sloppy mess sergeant. Uh, and that was kind of the image that people had uh, of, of chefs. So that was the first thing that CIA tried to do. You know, we're going we're gonna to professionalize this, uh, this group. Um, and we're going to have, a, a, you know, a, a code that we follow. And we're going to, one of the ways that you professionalize uh, an industry or profession is through education. And what happens in professions 
is that um, as they progress, if they do progress, mm -hmm. um, the requirements for education become greater and greater and greater. And that's basically what we, uh, we have been doing. Um, we've been researching new things, we've been expanding the education, and we have been upping the ante for what is required uh, in, our, in our profession. And um, you know, my, even my doctoral dissertation at the University of Pennsylvania was focused on that. You know, how do professions progress? What really happens? How can an institution of higher learning help accelerate that? Mm -hmm. What are past examples of it? And what does that mean for the CIA? And that's really the game plan that we've been following for, you know, the several decades of my, my presidency now. And it's been thrilling. It's been very exciting. So, Tim, you know it's been uh, a few decades since uh, I attended there. But I've, I have a burning thought in my head, quickly, especially I knew we were, we were talking today. Seadorm, my room looking over at Lake Valute. What, what kind of condition is that in today? I mean, it, <laughs> it's a great, it's a great condition. It's a great condition. Uh, we still call the lake Lake Velute, um, and it's it's funny you mentioned that. What was your room number? Do you remember, George? No, I don't. And I was trying to. I, 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 gosh. Okay, we have to. We're it's gonna, like the we're second or third floor. It's got to be. We're going to research that yeah, because be. um, I I did an interesting thing uh, recently. Uh, we just admitted our, our fall freshman uh, class, the biggest class we've ever admitted, by the way. Mm -hmm. And particularly coming off of COVID, these students are so fired up and sure. so energetic and so positive and so happy to be here. It's, it's just, uh, it's been a wonderful, uh, wonderful thing. Anyhow, two young uh, students came up to me, uh, two, two young men, and said, hey, guess what? We're in your old dorm room. <laughs> And um, I said, now, nah, how, how would you even know my old dorm room, what, what it was? They said, it's uh, Angel, what we used to call a dorm. Okay. We eventually got around to naming the, uh, the dorm. <laughs> but George, in my day, you know, there was a bunch of chefs here. It was just like A, B, C yeah, dorm. That's right, it. That's we got it. another thing to do. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> there was a lot of reflection on things. We've got orders to get out. But uh, so these, uh, these young guys said, uh, A222. I said, well, that was my room. So they invited me to come down. And I hadn't been down there. I mean, I, I, I visit the dorms on occasion, but I'm not hanging out in, in the dorm rooms. Yeah. And I went down to uh, my old dorm room, and we took pictures, and they sent it to their parents and, and all that. It was great. And hey, you know, our, our uh, dorm rooms were very modern, very progressive they back were. then. And yeah. we've, uh, we've continued to update them. And and modernize them. So it was great. It was, uh, it was great, but I've been in my old dorm room re recently. And when you come back, we're going to find your room <laughs> okay. and uh, you're going to visit it and we'll put a little plaque up there. So, so through, through my experience in visiting my old, old room, we came up with the idea that we're going to, uh, all of our notable alumni, and you know, there's a, there's a lot, you included, Quite a we're, we're going to yeah. put, uh, whoever was in what room, we're going to put a plaque that these famous alumni lived in this, in this, uh, in this dorm room, and that'll be uh, that'll be fun for the students. Well, I think that's what makes you really really special, Tim. Is you know all your accomplishments, and yet you're still able to be relatable to the most important thing, the students. Um, I want to thank you for joining us today. It's just it's just been an honor and a pleasure, uh, and a personal just just that we've been able to to catch up. Absolutely great to see you, George. Thank you.
That was Dr. Tim Ryan, president of the Culinary Institute of America. For more information on the CIA programs, restaurants, visit ciachef.edu. As in any profession, a solid education builds a foundation that cannot be replicated. I've often been asked, how can I be a successful chef? It takes hard work, sacrifice, and continued professional development to rise in one's career. Whatever your interests, get as much experience as you possibly can, immersing yourself in its path. I'm George Hirsch with today's Good to Know. Mise en place is a French culinary phrase, which means putting in place, or everything in its place. It refers to the setup required before cooking and is often used by chefs referring to organizing and arranging ingredients in a professional kitchen. This state of mind in preparedness can be applied outside of the kitchen to the classroom, office, and home. Americans spend nearly $10 billion a year on self-help and personal organizational products, partially because most colleges don't teach basic organization. But culinary schools and professional kitchens do. Perhaps the principles of culinary organization can be a good example to those who aren't chefs. Start with a space such as your desk. Organize items on the desk based on the things you use the most. Even the smallest detail is putting your pen back in one specific place. The mindset? A clear and efficient space to work equals a clear mind. And that's good to know. Recently, Alex and I were in the kitchen, creating some exciting dishes and having fun with food. Food education is available in many forms, including books, TV, and online. Today, there are food courses all over the globe that include a mandatory study in food education for school-aged children. People who previously used to be shy about cooking now take delight in mastering this art. And that is an incredible thing because people love to eat. It is a source of pleasure, entertainment, fun, and a way to express love and respect. Beyond learning how to make that perfect dish, the ultimate purpose of food education is cultivating a healthy body and mind and enriching human nature. And food education is a source to connect to each other. Hey, Alex. Hey, George. How's it going? Good. What do you think is the oldest school-age education program in the world? Oldest? The oldest. The I, oldest. I have no idea. What is it? I mean, if you were to guess one nation. Yeah. England. England is on the list, but it is not the top. Can you believe it's Japan? Wow. No, that makes sense. Yeah, I would believe that now that you told me. I believed it was Japan, but what I found was really just bizarre was it went it goes back to 1896 a japanese health scientist developed one of the first programs for children because he found that the moral education in food was critical at a very very young age um that's actually more recent than i thought it would be though 1896 you thought so yeah i was actually surprised it went back that far the second one didn't really kind of come out at me it was kind of expected was france yeah i mean when you're talking about food you just figure that france is the starter of most of it now it's run by the ministry of education and what they teach to now this isn't an option this is in mandatory early uh education classes they must conform to the french way of eating so and what's that baguettes that, and butter or <laughs> no well yeah and good brie and cheese and no it's actually uh an appetizer main with dessert. 
So it's a complete meal. Okay. You know, it's just not a McNugget and fries. Well, they take it seriously in France. I know when the whole anti-carb, no gluten movement started taking over, um, baguette sales were down big time. And kind of like how we had the Got Milk campaign here, they had uh, bread campaigns in France. And another thing they teach, the, the, the teachers are responsible for this, is to correct the students at a very early age in etiquette and food culture. So that's that's a great way of preserving actually their their history. I don't think that we still have an etiquette course here in America. I, I didn't get to the U.S. That's going to be down the list a little bit anyway. Um, the next one I'm, I'm sure you'd be proud of is Germany. Okay. Okay. It's uh, implemented. The program is called the Public Kitchen Project, and to me, it's actually I think it's something that uh, we did in the U.S. years ago. They they, they teach the pyramid. Um, I'm not sure if that's still being yeah, taught I think that because outdated because yeah. they said there was something wrong with one component of the pyramid. But um, so it's all about different foods in the UK. Uh, eh, it's uh, students seven to fourteen must learn to cook basic meals. Well, that's good. I, everybody should learn to cook basic meals. Um, at by age fourteen, they must know how to make twenty dishes. Wow, that's pretty pretty amazing. I like that. That's pretty good. Okay, now we come to the U.S. Well, this is real functional education too. You know, you're learning things that you'll actually use in real life, you're like how apply. to feed yourself. Yeah, once you're on your own, you just have a, a basic fundamental of food. Now let's talk about the U.S. Now the U.S. does not have any mandatory program or any, um, I guess they leave it up to the individual states and in individual municipalities. What they do offer is uh, encourage, and the word is encourage, schools to buy farm fresh foods from their local community. Now, I think that's in the form of an incentive that they get financially. Yeah, buying, and I think that's local something that's got to be relatively new too. I mean, when I went to school and you had frozen pizza on Fridays, I'm pretty sure that didn't come from a farm. Right, right. Now, I, I looked, of course, one of the largest school systems in the country is New York City School District or school system. And I thought they would have an organized program. I was kind of disappointed that they didn't. But what they did offer was they offering free meals to all their students for breakfast, lunch, and supper. But they even have something they call after the bell breakfast. But What's that? After the bell breakfast is students that maybe come in late morning. Okay. And they've missed the breakfast. So they've come in after the bell. They can still go down to the cafeteria and get a meal and get a breakfast right up until almost before lunchtime. So they're never really without that nutrition and that background. But what they do offer is this garden to cafe, but because I guess of the layout of the different schools in the city, some have rooftop gardens, some might have access to a park um, where they have a kind of a, a grow and, and eat within the system. So these little different components are uh, all about the education of, of, of kids. And I think this is something that is, is paramount and needs to be addressed a little bit more, you know, in, in our, in our country. Yeah. I mean, food's the basis of everything, right? So if a kid goes to school and he doesn't get a good meal, they're not going to do well in school because they can't concentrate. When you go to a lot of places, like for example, when I was in South Africa, and I know you've spent time in South Africa as well, we were visiting some of the shanty towns around Cape Town. And when I was talking to the head of the school districts there, they said the biggest problem that they have is 
having enough food for kids who go to school because some of the kids only go to school because that's the only meal that they're getting for the day. But if they get to school and they don't eat, they're not going to pay attention and they're not going to learn. So food, not only learning how to cook food for yourself is fundamental, but actually having food to eat so that you can learn other things is really important. There actually isn't any other group that's more passionate when it comes to feeding and education than chefs. Yeah, that's for sure. And giving up their their personal time to be able to go into the community. I, th I think the development of food programs and you know coordinating with chefs, dietitians, even restaurant and hospitality people coming together and working with local educators really could be a massive solution. You know, the education goes far out of um, of just going into the schools. There's, you know, online with TV. My TV series that you're part of now has been on for many, many years, and that is really just an extension of the classroom. Yeah, well, you, your career had a giant component in education where you started and ran a culinary school. That's right. And and all my instructors were the most passionate uh, chefs and individuals, you know, to be able to. Well, I think another thing about, about chefs is, is that they kind of naturally have to be educators because if you're going to come up with a bunch of recipes and, and use all these ingredients and put them together in a certain way and provide a consistent product, you have to be able to teach that to a bunch of cooks. And, you know, cooks can range anywhere from kids who are later on in high school to college students to professional chefs who do this as a career. So you have to be able to take an idea that you came up with and teach it to people varying from, I don't know, 16 to their 50s or 60s and have all of them be able to do it the same way. And that takes, that takes real education. It takes a real good teacher to do that. There are more than 560 tribes recognized by the U.S. government, each with its own food and agricultural history and culture. Today, schools and Native American tribes across the country are incorporating traditional foods like bison, wild rice, and ancient varieties of squash and corn into school meals, plus provide educational activities that teach students about nutrition and Native American food traditions. Practical lessons via farm-to-school programs in a tribal setting or in a school with a high Native American population help connect students to this history and expand markets for local and Native American farmers. All this does my heart really good, having personally worked with the USDA years ago to benefit childhood nutrition. But it wasn't always like this. The traditions of native kitchens were largely overlooked until a chef had the foresight to take it on. Even though they were told, you don't have the education and native people don't have a cuisine. Joining us is a Santa Fe, New Mexico-based chef, award-winning author, and native food historian with a PhD in culinary anthropology. Her dissertation, The Disclosure and Practice of Native American Cuisine, Native American Chefs, and Native American Cooks in Contemporary Southwest Kitchens. She received her Master's of Arts in Cultural Anthropology, where she focused on the importance of corn as a common thread to all indigenous tribes throughout the Americas. Welcome, Dr. Frank. Thank you for having me. Well, first, we're going to, we're going to, before we get into the so much we need to talk about, we have to take claim to your fame as being one of ours. You are from New York and grew up on Long Island. I did. 
I did. And great memories, beautiful place to grow up. So how did the travels take you uh, to the Southwest? So, you know, it, it, it sort of goes back. My um, We went to uh, school on the North Shore of Long Island. In the early 1960s, my parents bought a piece of land and a, built a small mm-hmm. house in Remsenburg, and uh, we went out there every weekend and every summer. And my mom always had a garden. And we used to sell her little produce at the end of Tuthill Lane. And what I noticed was that the zucchini and some of the things that she had grown weren't moving as quickly. So I decided I was going to bake these little zucchini breads. And uh, immediately that added value to her beautiful produce. And they flew off the shelves. And uh, the first health food store on Main Street in West Hampton started to buy my little breads. <laughs> and uh, I realized that not only, and we're talking, I was, uh, you know, young. I fell in love with cooking. And I think my mom throughout my high school years really encouraged me to learn about foods. Uh, I was a, a personal and private chef in West Hampton, and I had some culinary education. And then I started working in restaurants and knew I wanted to be a chef, knew that food was going to be my life. I think what got me was I started as a woman uh, early on when women had not crossed what we call the culinary gender lines. Sure. And uh, the profession of cooking, um, born actually to feed the royal court is very Eurocentric Mm -hmm. in that it follows a guild system. So you actually started as an apprentice, you became a journeyman, and then you moved into being a master. Culinary schools have sped that up, but women still didn't, weren't a part of the guilds in European tradition. I think many people or many listeners may have seen the movie Julia and Julie, right? And Mm -hmm. um, until women could cross this gender line, we were told to go into pastry or we would never be an executive chef, uh, always work under a man. And I'm sort of a fiercely independent spirit. And that didn't sit well. So I left Long Island and I went and got my uh, undergraduate degree, a Bachelor of Arts in photography. And what came naturally to me, again, was to cook. So I moved to Los Angeles and worked for some of the best food photographers in the industry. Uh, and found out that that industry also was dominated by men. And they kept saying, don't you want to be a producer? And I said, no, I want to be a director of photography. And uh, so I sort of miscalculated two kind of fields that were dominated by men. I had a very rewarding career in Los Angeles. And um, after the L.A. riots in the early 90s, um, I... I really wanted to move, you know, I mean, Long Island was very rural when I was growing up. And I really like that sort of country, small. Mm-hmm. My dad always used to tease us and say that we didn't have city smarts, that we needed to, uh, you know, there's a way of being in New York, you know, and we didn't have that because we were too far out on Long Island. Sure, sure, sure. Yeah. So um, I moved to Santa Fe, New Mexico, and again, did some private chef and worked at the uh, local Uh, culinary school here, and then formed uh, a company called Red Mesa in 2006. And uh, we started catering uh, all over. The niche was uh, very local focused, very native focused, Mm -hmm. um, celebrating foods that native people gave to the world and uh, still have Red Mesa, still cooking. We've cooked all over the world uh, as part of a culinary diplomacy program with the U.S. State Department and uh, 
aside from wonderful clients uh, all over of all different walks of life, I work with Chef Walter Whitewater and our give back is to go into native communities and educate cooks and uh, community members on how to make these same foods uh, very simply, very healthy for health and wellness. Um, Native Americans, we learned this during COVID, if anyone didn't know, uh, have one of the highest rate of, of diabetes and obesity. And the reclaiming of this indigenous diet for health and wellness um, is very beneficial. So that's sort of our give back now uh, to Native communities and kind of been full circle. Dr. Frank, how how difficult was it to research traditional Native cooking techniques and ingredients? Because I would imagine that many of these things were passed down by word of mouth. So it's not like you could just pick up a cookbook and figure it out. How, how did you go about acquiring the knowledge yourself? So that's a really good question. And um, yes, Native tradition, as are other traditions, uh, orally based. But there's something, uh, I call it Native science, uh, that is called traditional ecological knowledge. Knowledge based on the ecology of where you live. So it's very land-based, very land-focused. Uh, for instance, uh, here in the Southwest, we have a lot of Pueblos as well as some tribes in New Mexico. And corn, beans, and squash, the three sisters, are, are three of the dominant foods. Uh, chilies come right after that. And then wild game, et cetera, some wild foods. If we were living on the Northwest Coast, the dominant food would be salmon. Okay. And on the East Coast, the Native people know all about oysters. I mean, you can look at the Shinnecock. They still have that beautiful land and they're revitalizing oysters. So the, the knowledge around how to harvest, when to harvest, is this native science? And every culture in the world has it. So it's about learning what works and what doesn't work in a specific ecosystem and ecozone uh, environment. It's a very harmonious way of functioning, too. Right. So how foreign was all of this back when you were setting to write your book to make this revolutionary thing about Native American food? What, well, what, what is this fry fry bread? You going to tell everybody about? Is that is that what we're going to be? You know, yeah. It's well, so, so a fry more. bread is a pan Indian food, which means exactly that, uh, of the um, we'll have to. Uh, I believe it's five hundred and seventy seven tribes now that are federally recognized. Although some are state mm -hmm. recognized, so there are more tribes than that federal number. Um, but there, so when I re-entered academia in the mid to late 90s, and before that, I did go to New York and I pitched doing a cookbook on Native American cuisine. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, the publishers in New York tell me two things. One, Native people don't have a cuisine, which I thought I had also heard that in culinary school, that American cuisine was made up of all the immigrant contributions, but mm -hmm. Native people didn't have a voice. And you know, all of that didn't sit well with me. So... I re-entered academia and my PhD is the discourse and practice of Native American cuisine. I'm working on another book, which is going to be called The Magic Eight. And those are eight foods that Native people gave to the world prior to 1492. Mm -hmm. So this sort of all ties in. So my research uh, states that there are four distinct periods of Native American cuisine. The pre-contact mm -hmm. period, which goes back at least 10,000 years. They just found footprints here in New Mexico that are 20,000 years old. So wow. my research goes back about 10,000 years. So we know now it's older than that. Uh, so pre-contact period 
foods that existed prior to contact, not with each other. We know native people traded. Those trade routes were very extensive. And uh, this is both in oral tradition as well as Western science. In 2009, scientists at the University of New Mexico found a vessel in Chaco Canyon. In the vessel was theobromine. Theobromine is the marker for chocolate. They radiocarbon dated and it was over a thousand years ago, chocolate was in Chaco Canyon. Well, it wow. didn't originate here. So that means that people walked it here. Okay, so pre-contact, right. very diverse, lots of trade routes, lots of different foods. And then there's first contact. And first contact is going to vary depending on where you are in the United States. Eastern seaboard, the English, right? And, you know, a little bit of Dutch. New York was technically New Amsterdam before it became New York. We see the English. We see 13 colonies. We see the Western seaboard. We see the English. We see the French really going a little further north into what we call the fur trade routes into Canada. They still have the French language there. Uh, and then coming down into, you know, the, the northern part of what is now the United States and the Spanish going into the Caribbean and coming up and going south. So again, it's going to depend where you are, what that first contact was. And it's never a one-way street. First contact foods were introduced to native people that didn't exist and foods that didn't exist in the old world or in Europe uh, were introduced by native people. So the magic eight, corn, beans, squash, chili, tomato, potato, vanilla, and cacao did not exist until after 1492. And we have this erroneous holiday coming up called Columbus Day. Uh, the state of New Mexico has actually legally changed that to Indigenous Peoples Day. Uh, mm -hmm. Some states are following, some are not. But basically, it would have been a little more accurate historically to say, thinking the world was flat, using faulty maps in 1492, Columbus set sail looking for India and black pepper and accidentally stumbled upon another continent called the Americas. And therein lies a little bit more accurate, right? So we do credit him with facilitating this food exchange. We call it the Colombian exchange. Uh, and as ingredients go to the old world, the Italians get the tomato, the Irish get the potato, in Britain, they have their chips with their fish. Uh, the Russia did not have the potato, no vodka from the potato, no chilies in any Asian cuisine, no chilies in East Indian curries. And, you know, you can look at uh, the Swiss and the French and in Belgium, and there was no chocolate or vanilla for their confection, which they're all famous for now. So we have this pre-contact, then we have first contact. And what was introduced right. to Native people? domesticated animals, and their byproducts. Because Native people only hunted wild game, there was no dairy. Mm -hmm. You know, maybe yeah. some of the ancestors tried to milk lactating wild animals, but uh, they either run away or they charge to protect their young. So no butter, no yogurt, no milk, no cheese, no dairy. And then wine and wheat also introduced, uh, and, and uh, you know, the grape and wheat, again, profound ingredients that just did not exist uh, in native cuisine. So we delineate this by saying pre-contact, first contact. In the case of Native Americans, there's another period called the government issue period. So we have to like fast mm -hmm. forward really quickly from sure. the 1600s yeah. to the 1700s, colonies, industrialization, railroad, 
uh, immigrants heading westward, the U.S. government encouraging people to do that by saying there was free land. And, you know, if you're an immigrant, that sounds great. But if you're a native person, waves and waves and waves of immigrants are coming at you, that probably doesn't feel like free land. That probably feels like an invasion. Correct. So as native people are displaced, this science, this TEK is lost and foods are issued. That's where fry bread is born. That's where the Indian taco is born. Lard, flour, sugar, coffee, and the infamous Mm -hmm. canned meat called spam never existed. So we call this period government issue. And each native community today is deciding, do we want this a part of our repertoire? Do we want this a part of our uh, cuisine or do we not? Some do, some don't. Uh, We do a version called no fry fry bread. So we've just taken out the lard and made it a little healthier. Mm -hmm. But pre-contact, first contact, government issue. And then where we are now, and to me, this is the most exciting, the new native. And the new native is really new ways of presenting old food or ancestral food. And that's what I specialize in with Chef Walter at Red Mesa. That's what we're doing is taking these old ingredients and using our culinary techniques and beautiful visual presentation and wonderful flavor components and presenting them in a very contemporary way. Well, Dr. Frank, I, I gotta thank you. It's, it's just such a pleasure. You're, you're so informative. You are the number one source when it comes to uh, Native American foods. So I wanna thank you for joining us. Uh, for more about Dr. Lois Frank and her amazing knowledge of the Southwest and the Native American cuisine, recipes, cookbooks, foods, and Southwest Indian nations, visit redmesacuisine.com. A Native American proverb says it best, respect the land, only take what you need, and before eating, always take the time to thank the food. For more food, culture, and lifestyle tips, guest interviews, and our podcast, visit WLIW.org radio and ChefGeorgeHirsch.com. And join our conversation on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at WLIWFM and at George Hirsch. We've done a lot of programs ourselves, and we've gone into the community, but there is one food and we've used it on the on the TV show as well, that is universal. And I think every great chef masters it, and it's one of the first thing, and that would be the egg. The egg, the most versatile, nutritious, and affordable item. Um, yeah, let's talk food. Let's talk okay. food. Okay. So I actually have an egg story that was very fundamental in my career as a chef. I was uh, working at the River Cafe, and we had a late – night seating with a fully booked reservation and we had a very early event the next morning so the call time was so early for the event that i actually stayed at the chef's house in a guest room so that we could just get up and go and when i woke up that morning he was already apologizing to me that all he had was butter eggs and toast he was sorry guy i'm gonna make (laughs) you breakfast but i don't have any bacon or ham or anything but i made you an egg sandwich so i come down and there's this beautiful tall fluffy bright yellow egg sandwich. And I had never had scrambled eggs like this. Um, You know, I I always overcooked them and I didn't mix them enough and I let the curds get brown and kind of tough. And I just didn't know what real true chef scrambled eggs were, where you just keep the pan on a low heat and you just keep mixing those eggs and mixing it. It gets creamier and creamier. 
and slow and slow. Yeah, and you're not doing whipping it. it like you would a hollandaise, but you're almost getting it to that point where it has this really, really velvety, creamy texture. And then at the end, you can add a little bit of butter or some mascarpone if you have it, or even cream cheese, and that makes it even creamier. And what you get is this very light, tall, fluffy scrambled eggs. So that I had that sandwich and it really blew my mind. I remember saying to him, I said, Chef, I've never eaten eggs that tasted this good. And it didn't teach me about eggs. What it really taught me was a life lesson about paying attention to detail and the importance of learning true and proper foundations in any technique that you're going to do. And for me, it was really a life lesson. It wasn't just about eggs. It wasn't just about cooking. No matter how menial the task, if you really learn the best way to do it and then master that, you're going to take anything that you're doing in life and take it to another level. You elevate yourself. So by being a chef who can cook perfect scrambled eggs, that's a chef that I know is going to make a perfect roast chicken or really know how to grill a piece of beef because they're paying attention to even what seems like insignificant details. Other than, let's say, eggs, is there another technique that you found that is paramount from an early stage? Other than scrambled eggs, I think that learning how to emulsify an egg yolk is very important because, as you know, my number one most hated food in the world is store-bought jarred mayonnaise. Hate. I just don't like store-bought mayonnaise. I don't like the texture. I don't like the smell. I don't like the consistency. But I will make mayonnaise in a food processor with beautiful form-fresh egg yolks, a really high-quality oil, and then whatever flavors I feel like having, like a roasted garlic aioli, or you could put in chipotle peppers and make a spicy mayonnaise that goes great on top of crab cakes or even a burger. So I think that when you learn how to whip an egg properly and then add some type of fat to it and make a sauce, you can really elevate some of your at-home meals. You can make a hollandaise sauce. If you know how to whip an egg over a double boiler and then slowly drizzle in clarified butter, you can have a great breakfast sauce. And these are things that only take three or four ingredients, but will really impress your guests or, or your family or whoever it is that you're cooking for. Sounds good to me, Alex. Food education has many sources and origins. By honoring and acknowledging the land and the people who grow and cultivate food, we can better understand the context and stories of cultures and trace their movements over time. Glad to have you join us on George Hirsch Lifestyle Radio. I'm George Hirsch. And I'm Alex Getzfried. Our producer is Delaney Hafner, along with production support from Kyle Lynch. Supervising producer is Allie Gimble. George Hirsch and Diane Michelli are co-executive producers. George Hirsch Lifestyle Radio is a co-production of Hirsch Media and Audio Engagement Group, LLC. Thanks so much for tuning in to George Hirsch Lifestyle Radio, the show that celebrates how our lives are connected through food and culture. For more episodes and our podcast, visit wiw.org radio and chefgeorgehirsch.com and your favorite streaming and podcast platforms. We'll see you next week, right here on George Hirsch Lifestyle Radio.